Yes or no? There we go. That's good. Praise the Lord, right? So we're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 7 and 8. Find those. Just a quick announcement as I forgot one as I was walking up here. Sometimes you get up here and the lights come on in your face and you're like, where am I? What am I doing, right? Uh, Kevin Terrell has the opportunity to build a ramp. He's looking for some folks to maybe help him with that a ramp ministry. So if you would catch Kevin, if you don't know who that is, could you put up your hand there for some folks if they don't know who you are? Uh, help build a ramp for someone in our community in need. So please catch him. He, he had mentioned, I think, making that announcement, and I think I just kept on going. So I apologize about that. And catch him if you would be able to assist with that. So we're going to be looking today at Genesis chapter 7 and 8. And instead of reading the whole thing, I'd encourage you to maybe do that maybe later today or this evening or sometime this week, because there's lots here. I want us to just read together from chapter 7, verse 11, into chapter 8, uh, to chapter 8, verse 5. I think this really gives us a big overview of what's going on here, and it'll help us to sort of get to the meat, to the heart of uh, what, what the Lord would have to say to us here. So look with me at Genesis chapter 7, and we'll start reading together in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And all those who entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a window, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rains from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. But the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the top 
of the mountains were seen. This is the word of God. Last week, we kind of began looking at the flood. We've been working our way through these opening chapters of the book of Genesis, and and we realized that the flood is one of the most important events in the whole Bible. Not just in the Old Testament, but even the New Testament makes reference to the flood time and time again. And last week, we largely looked at the lead up to the flood. Why did God flood the earth? And if you were here with us, we looked at Genesis 6-5, which declared this, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We saw how bad things were in the days of Noah. We saw not only was there this sort of mass perversion of God's design for sexuality and marriage in those days, but we were told that violence filled the earth. Things were bad in these days, and that's why God flooded the earth as an act of judgment. But we also saw that God promised to save Noah and his family along with animals that came into the ark with him through this boat that he was going to build and that the flood was both an act of judgment but also a display of God's mercy and grace. In the midst of all of this, we saw Genesis 6:8 which told us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah received grace. God was gracious to Noah. But the flood story doesn't simply end with Noah hearing God's word and by faith building a boat. That's often where we stop it. But no, chapter 6 left off with these words. Chapter 6 verse 22 tells us this, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. And then the story continues, highlighting for us Noah's continued obedience. Noah wasn't just called to build a boat, he also had to get into it. (laughs) Noah didn't just have to build this boat, he had to spend a long time on this boat. Look what... Look what chapter 7, verse 5 says. We see Noah's continued obedience. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. We see it again in in chapter 7, verse 9, how two and two, male and female, the animals, went into the ark with Noah just as God had commanded Noah. And then we see in chapter 7, uh, verse 16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went into the ark as God had commanded. They needed not just to build a boat, they also had to get into the boat and trust that it would be a sturdy shelter for all that may come in. But it's interesting to note, if you read through chapter 7 and 8, Noah really is sort of a supporting actor in the whole thing. He's really only mentioned a few times The main emphasis is on the water. The emphasis is on the flood. The flood gets mentioned. The waters get mentioned nearly 18 times in the text. And we're told in four times, just in verse 17 to 24, that we read this morning that the waters prevailed. This comes from the Hebrew word, if you want your Hebrew word of the day, Gabor, which means mighty man. He wants to give us the picture of the flood as a mighty man who would conquer an enemy. So the waters prevailed, conquering over all of creation. And in Genesis 7 to 8, we see three truths that I think we need to recognize. First, You'll see this in your notes. We recognize that the flood 
was real. This may seem elementary. You may go, well, duh, pastor, we knew that. But I don't, I don't think this is something that we need to just skip over. I think there's something that needs to be reiterated, that the flood was a real event. The flood was a real event. And I have found that there are three primary questions that I've gotten asked uh, from folks about the flood. And you'll see them in your notes and you'll see some space where you can kind of fill in some of the answers that we'll look at together this morning. The first question I usually get asked is, how do we know that the flood is historical? How do we know that the flood is historical? Some have tried to say, well, this is purely mythological. This is symbolic. You know, they try to do whatever they want to try to make the text not mean what it says. And yet, Moses, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to us clearly in a way that if he was writing some sort of mythology or some sort of symbolic work, he simply wouldn't have done. The first thing we see is the context of Genesis. Simply put, and I hope this has been clear as we've worked through this book, it's been clear that Moses is writing history to us. From Genesis 1 to 2 to the precision of the genealogies we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 5 to what will come later with the Tower of Babel and with Abraham, Genesis 7 falls right in line with what came before it, what came after it. And if one wants to make this symbolic or mythology, they got to take the whole book that way. And that's simply not what Moses is doing. Moses intends to communicate to us that this really happened. But we also need to realize that if someone were still on the fence about whether Moses and and God through Moses intended to tell us that this really happened, look at the specific details he begins to give us in this text. We're told how many animals, how many of each animal that Noah brought, including the clean and unclean animals. We're told Noah's age, both when he comes on the boat and the exact date he leaves the boat. We're told that the flood lasted 150 days, and we're even presented with what Noah did after he gets off the boat in chapter 8 and 9. This is simply too detailed to be anything but historical. He's simply giving us all of this detail that if he wanted it to be symbolic, he's given us way too many details to try to fit symbols into it. Simply isn't how it's written. And the primary difference, you'll hear a lot of people go, well, if you know, you know, you know that, that other cultures had flood stories. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong, right? I, I saw one source this week that said that there are over 200 accounts from different cultures all over the world of a flood, many of them claiming to be a global flood. Others, you know, maybe we're talking about large floods. And of these 200 in the ancient world, one of the most popular ones is this a poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And people often say, well, Moses stole from that. But if people say that, they obviously never read it because it's a really strange book. I promise you can go home and, and read it, but it's got all these, these gods doing things and he builds this big square boat and they, and they float on the water, but God needs man to, so he brings the water. I mean, it, it literally doesn't fit the story that Genesis is telling us. And so while Genesis is unique in that it gives us a flood account that's written down rather than oral, a lot of these stories that people have said about floods have been oral tradition. This is something that's written down for us to examine and consider, but it's also presented in the form of giving us a historical fact, not in some sort of poetry or mythology the way that 
uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, uh, is written. And I think the biggest thing to think about is number three, that the apostles and Jesus saw this as historical. That the Son of God, God in flesh, came and spoke about the flood as something that really happened. And friends, I'm going to take his word on it. (laughs) He's the one that went in the grave and came back up. And I'm trusting in him for my salvation. Why can't I believe him for all the other things he told me? The second question, so people say, well, how do we know the flood's historical? There's, There's some things you can consider, but... Oftentimes people ask, but how did Noah fit every animal on the ark? How did Noah fit every animal on the ark? And I think it's important to see that Noah didn't have to put every single animal on the face of the earth in the ark. I'll tell you why it wouldn't be a problem if he did later. But notice chapter 7, verse 13. Look at this with me. On the very same day that Noah and his son, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his son entered with them into the ark... They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Notice that. First, it tells us he brought land animals, air-breathing land animals, and some birds onto the ark. Simply put, he didn't have to bring the fish with him, because... There was lots of water, right? So that's, that might be obvious, but it's important to think about. And second, the use of the word kinds here. You can go online and read all sorts of things this week about it. I know I've spent a lot of time reading about the use of the words kinds here, and there's a lot of debate you can read about. Is a kind the same thing as a species, or is a kind a more broader classification, like what biologists would call a family or a genus, right? That would be the biological term for that. And, and kinds is certainly, I think regardless of how one wants to classify it, it certainly is classified as animals that can produce together because the Bible says that they reproduce after their own kind. That's the minimum requirement for two things to be of the same kind, is that they can have children together. So the text simply doesn't tell us exactly how many animals that there were. But I think we can have some flexibility on the amount. If someone, I've seen some numbers that if kinds were in the most broad classification, he might need something like thousands of animals rather than millions in order to produce all the variety and diversity of the present life on earth. So kinds might be a little broader. He doesn't say every single animal from everywhere on the face of the earth came into the boat. He simply says various kinds did that. Two of each kind came with him. And finally, it's important to note that Noah probably brought young animals on board with him. Noah, for one, because he wanted them to have long lifespans afterward. I don't know why you'd bring two if you're wanting to repopulate after the flood, that you'd bring the most elderly animals you could find, right? He brought young animals, and this radically reduces, I think, the animals needed for the boat and the space he would need to potentially hold this. So as we saw last week, Noah had a big boat. (laughs) Noah had a very big boat. And finally, you may ask, well, could it float? Could it float? I know you've got three blanks there, but the short answer is yes, it could float. And let me, let me, I'll send this out to the church this week if y'all are interested. But I did some research, and I found an interesting study from advanced physics students at the University of Lecture, which is in the United Kingdom, so overseas. 
And these were non-Christian physics students that just had, had to have some sort of project that they had to work on. And so their project was, let's see if we put the measurements of Noah's Ark together, and let's see if we did some estimates. Could this float, right? They wanted to put it to the test. You can go look at some of this. Again, I'll send this study out to you this week. But this made news around the world a few years ago when the Noah movie came out about 2013 or so. And here were the results from their, uh, from their study. Here's what they said. Our calculations show that the ark was, was, more, was of necessary size to provide a buoyancy force to support the weight of 2.15 million sheep, of which the sheep represent the average size of the animals. Therefore, regardless of which figure is correct, and that's whether you want to use kinds more broadly or kinds more specifically, we believe that the ark to be of sufficient buoyancy. There you got it. University students who put this to the test, who weren't Christians, they weren't people even, and you'll see in a second, not even necessarily trying to prove it's true, simply said the concept would work. I love this. One of the students was interviewed for the Telegraph newspaper, and here's what he said. I love this. This is Thomas Morris, who was one of the students. You don't think of the Bible necessarily as a scientifically accurate source of information. Well, he might not, but that's, that's neither here nor there, right? So I guess we were quite surprised when we discovered it would work. We're not proving that it's true, but the concept would definitely work. They have it. This person didn't come in with an agenda trying to prove this at all, but he said, wow, you could hold a whole lot of sheep, <laughs> On there. And as we've seen, God probably needed a lot less than those sort of animals to make this thing float. The flood was real. But I also want us to think that the flood isn't just something that we should think about simply as an historical event. It is a historical event, but if we leave it there and miss what God is trying to teach us through the flood, then I think we've not gone far enough. The flood is more than just something that happened. Your second point you'll see is the flood was an act of recreation. The flood was an act of recreation. The flood changed the world as Noah knew it. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, which was one of the texts we looked at last week, Peter compares the days of Noah to the the day when, when Jesus returns and recreates the world. And he compares those things. And I want you to look at this. This is 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 to 7. Look at this. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He says, hey, that the world of Noah's day was covered with water and in one sense died and came to life again. In one sense was recreated, death and resurrection, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The world that Noah knew died and it came to life after the flood. It's alive today. And this isn't just something that Peter tells us looking back. I actually think Moses gives us some incredible things in the text to tell us that he wants us to focus in 
on recreation. In fact, Moses says he uses the words here from Genesis 1 and 2 over and over and over again to draw us back to think of this as new creation. You have these parallels there in your notes for you to go look at later, but let me just read a few off to you. Consider chapter 8. As the flood began to dry out, what do we see? Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah, we'll come back to that, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Here's your second Hebrew word for the week, the word ruach, which is the word for wind and the word for spirit, are actually identical in the Hebrew. And so we see here, as this has finished and God has caused the world to perish in water, that the spirit or wind of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Where have we seen that before? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right? Where the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But it doesn't stop there. Continue with me, chapter 8, and look at verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he made, and he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her feet, to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again, he sent forth the dove of the ark. Notice the scene here. You've got sky, and you've got water. You've got no dry land anywhere. And the raven and the doves are able to fly around, but they're not able to land anywhere. It's likely that the raven, being an unclean bird, found plenty of dead things to eat. But doves don't eat dead things. They're they're clean animals. They don't eat those sort of things. Does that, where else have we seen there being waters above and waters below separated and distinguished and there being only sky and sea? Well, day two of creation, we saw those things got separated, the waters above and the waters below, and that there was sky and sea and no dry land. But in the midst of this, we get more good news. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. What came out of the sea and the sky but vegetation, dry land, a freshly plucked olive leaf, new life. Day three, vegetation and new life. Here we're seeing at least hints here of new creation. God starting over, redoing what he had, what, what was undone by the flood. And then, just like at the end of the sixth of the sixth day of creation, the animals and man would begin to fill the new earth. So we see in verse thirteen to nineteen. Look at this: in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month. What day is it? It's, well, yeah, it's a six, it's the New Year's Day, isn't it? It's a new year, the first day of the first month of a new year. Here we have sort of a New Year's Day here. And God and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, 
On the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That you may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. And his sons and his wives and his sons' wives, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the ground, went out by families from the ark. You have a new world, a new humanity, a new couplet of kinds, almost in step with how God made things. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's recreation following the same pattern. And next week, you're going to see some other incredible things in chapter 9. Where, where, you, where you're going to see Noah being, being contrasted with Adam in some incredible ways. But we see that the point here is clear that the flood was meant to be and understood to be an act of recreation. The world dying and rising again. Finally, the third point you'll see is that the flood was a call to remember. A call to remember. Did you notice in the midst of all that we read, the turn in the whole account took place in chapter 8, verse 1. The whole turn took place in that God remembered Noah and all that was with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. And it wasn't as if God forgot, right? It wasn't as if God was like, well, I, I lost my guy in a boat. Where'd he go? Let me go find him. No, this was saying God was going to keep his promise. God had made a covenant with Noah. God was going to keep his promises that he would be seen through to the other side. And ultimately, the flood calls us to remember four things. Four things that, that the flood calls us to remember. First, we're to remember that God is Faithful. God is faithful. God kept his covenant he made in chapter 6 to Noah and to all who were in the ark. Those who went in by trusting God's word arrived safely on the other side. We should be remembered that even if, if it involves flooding the whole earth, God is faithful to his promises. He means what he says and he does what he says. But the flood should also remind us to remember Noah's waiting faith. Noah's waiting faith. Let me tell you, as I was thinking about this and reading through this, the God was preaching to the preacher. <laughs> as we are yet again in a time of waiting, the preacher was getting preached to because Noah's faith is such a model for us. And yet we don't often think of him as someone of great faith. When we think of great faith, we want to think of this sort of momentary burst of confidence. Noah at the, at, at the Red Sea, putting down his staff and at partying and then walking through, which definitely was, was great faith, or David conquering Goliath in a moment. And again, those are great, but Noah's faith was much more like that of Job, a patient waiting in the midst of trial and struggle, Consider the time markers in this passage. You'll see this on the screen. Think about this. In chapter 7, verses 4 and 10, we see God telling Noah to enter the ark and to get ready for the animals and to get ready with the animals because the rain was going to come in seven days. We're told that the rain fell for 40 days in verse 17. And finally, we're told twice that the waters prevailed over the earth for 150 days. 
Then interestingly enough, you actually see the, see the numbers repeat themselves. After 40 days, Noah sent out a raven. And afterward, after the flood, Noah is told to wait two sets of seven days. Not only is this sort of an interesting little structural thing in the text that you see, that it begins and ends sort of in the same place, but it displays Noah's faith and his ability to wait on God. Friends, if I were on that boat, second I saw that I could have got off, I'd be getting off. But Noah waited. In total, from Genesis 7, verse 11, when the floodgates opened to Genesis 8, verse 14, when the earth dried up, that was a total time of one year and ten days. Friends, Noah waited. You see the dates clearly marked out in the passage that you can kind of check out and do the math there a little bit. And one commentator I read this week shook me when he said this. He said, Noah did not yet move a foot out of his coffin without the command of God. Think about it. Noah built this boat. (laughs) He got in it. The flood's going on. Everything's dying. He had to think at least for a moment, I just built my own coffin. (laughs) And yet... Friends, he did not move until God said so. Noah was fully reliant on God's hand and God's word. And hear me, so are you. You're in the same situation Noah is in except less water, right? And the experience of the flood should remind us of where our faith should be. That, the, that in the flood, we see life come through death. We see that it's not until we lay our life down that we begin to find it. Isn't that what Noah did? He said, God, I trust you, even if it means going through the death and, and building this big boat and getting into it and, and just believing you through it all. God spoke. Noah literally built a big boat, coffin thing that he had to get into. And he trusted that God would be faithful to bring him to the other side of the floodwaters. And if you read to the end of chapter 8, Noah got out of the boat, he built an altar, and he worshipped in praise to God. Remember Noah's waiting faith. Remember, third, that Jesus is our ark. That Jesus is our ark. I know I've said this, uh, I know at least last week, but I think this is important for us to consider that Jesus walked the same path Noah did, except he did it without sin and in our place. Jesus walked in righteousness and sinlessness, and just like Noah was rejected by his generation, Jesus was rejected by his generation, and Jesus was plunged into the floodwaters of death. But he was kept by the power of God and by the power of his own indestructible life. He rose again to empty the grave of its power and, friends, to offer forgiveness and safety through the flood of death, through the flood of judgment day. Friends, we can, like Noah, stand on the other side. Friends, one of the verses, I think, that sums up Christianity, maybe we have some, some folks here that aren't familiar with, with, with Christianity or with the Bible, or maybe you've heard it your whole life. If I could bring down the news of the gospel, of what Christianity is about to one verse, Here's what I would give you. I'd give you 2 Corinthians 5.21. There's other verses I could give you, but 2 Corinthians 5.21. Look at this with me. 
For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the gospel, the good news of Christianity, the good news that all of this points to is that there is a great exchange. The sinless Son of God died and was treated as if he was a sinner so that sinners and lawbreakers could be treated as if they were righteous and without sin. We could be adopted as sons and daughters. Jesus got the punishment we deserved so that we could get what what none of us could ever earn, right standing before God and to be treated as if we never sinned. Jesus endured the flood in order to be our ark, our safety from death and our safety on the day of judgment. But friends, notice this is only true if you are in him. This is only true if you're in him. So many of us think, well, I'm I'm here. I'm here at church on Sunday. That's it. Friends, I I give to the church. I volunteer. I do these things. I'm I'm an okay person. But friends, this says that none of that is going to get you in him. Just like Noah had to step on the boat, we are called by faith to step in to Jesus. To trust that his promise and his gospel and his work will keep us secure through our eternity. That just as you came in today and you set in a chair placing your weight and your trust on it, so you put your weight and your trust and your confidence on Jesus, and He will be an ark to get you through to the other side. This is the message of Christianity. This is what it means to trust in Jesus and to find newness of life. And if you're someone who has never trusted in that or never fully understood that, we want to talk to you further. Please grab me or somebody after the service because there's nothing more important than knowing that you are in the ark when the flood comes. When a future day comes, there's nothing more important than knowing that you have a secure hope for eternal life. And the final thing that we're called to remember from the flood is that your hope is not of this world. Your hope is not of this world. Brothers and sisters, are we displaying the faith of Noah in these challenging days? I think in all that's going on, I think we're so tempted to shut ourselves out, to rely on ourselves, and to build other arcs, to try to build something else, whether it's politics, whether it's our health, whether it's our jobs, our kids, our money, even relationships with other people, whether spouses or boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it may be, we are so tempted to build our own salvation, to build our own hope. And friends, Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of his most famous sermons, telling a parable of two men. One man built his house on the rock of Jesus and his word. The other one built his house on the sand of other things. And I don't know a ton about building, but let me tell you, I'd much rather have my house on a rock than on sand, right? And he said that the floods came and destroyed the house of the second man who built his house on sand. But the house that was built on the rock of Jesus and his word survived. Let me tell you something. The Bible doesn't tell us that the house that was built on the rock was exempt from the flood. It got hit 
with the floodwaters, with the trials, with the struggles of life. Friends, Christianity isn't about your best life now or even an easy life or even the the quote-unquote blessed life of having everything you want. Friends, you will suffer. Things will happen. Floodwaters will press against the house of your life. But Jesus promises the rock that is built upon him and his word will ultimately stand firm through it all. The Christian faith isn't about freedom from the flood, but security in the midst of it. And though he spoke of Abraham, Paul wrote in Romans 4 about the faith that I think we are called to have and the hope that I think we're called to have in the midst of it. The hope that Noah had, the hope that, again, he wrote of Abraham here, the hope that I believe all of us will have. And here's what it says, Romans 4, 20 to 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Friends, is that us? Are we fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised? That as struggles come, do we grow strong in our faith and give glory to God? Or do we whine? and run away and not, and not find God to be our hope. Friends, how is our hope this morning? Where is your faith this morning? Friends, again, if you, if you need to encounter Jesus in a saving way, talk with us. Talk with one of us after the service. We'd love to introduce you to this Jesus. But I also encourage you, even if you've been in church all your life, Maybe you've even made a public profession. Maybe you've even been baptized and sort of done the regular things. I would encourage you to ask yourself, what am I trusting in? Where is my hope? What is my security? What, where is my confidence? Lord, we ask that you would grant us faith, not just to believe, but to be fully convinced that, that, that we would build a boat if you asked us to. We want God to give us faith that he's trustworthy enough that we would even get into the boat if he said to entrust it in the midst of raging waters. We ask that he would give us faith to do all that he commanded and faith to hope in the coming new creation. And the cry of the heart when we think about the flood is, Lord, give us faith. Give us faith like that. And so, friends, as we, as we prepare to worship, let's stand and let's pray together. And let's ask God to give us faith. Give us saving faith like Noah had. But give us faith to do what God commands, to walk as he would have us to walk. And to trust him into whatever life would bring. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are good. We're thankful that your word is true. We're thankful that your word is is, is able to, to be proven in many ways, that we see many things that happened in your word and we can trust it and we can... And we can see some of it, and and people have tested it, and we can see these things. We're also thankful that you promised to recreate the world. That the world, as we see it, that's often so vile and evil and wicked and and full of suffering and strife and and malice and all of these things. Lord, you've got a new world waiting for us when you return. 
and we ask and hasten for that day. But we ask that we be found, that anybody here who does not know you be found in the ark of your son. That you would rescue us, that you would help us, to help them to give them faith, grant them the gift of faith to trust in you this morning. And to cry out to you to have mercy on them and to meet them where they are. And Lord, give all of us faith to walk in obedience and in glory to you. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.